before we begin anything, and I think I, I just need to know. Are you going to use the same, like, theme music for bonus episodes, or is there going to be different theme music? <laughs> so, are you asking whether I'd be writing a different piece of theme music for each no. month? No, that seems, I mean, unless you really <laughs> want to. <laughs> that would really be giving people, you know, the bang for their buck, I guess, but I don't, I don't know if I can conceivably do that. I, that seems like a um, lot. I, more so, I was just wondering if we were going to get get the, the, a weird, like, um, you know, because... Uh, the theme song changes for every Human Instrumentality podcast season, but I think we're conceiving these bonus episodes. Hi, welcome to a bonus episode. Um, we're conceiving the bonus episodes as as sort of like an other, right? That that doesn't have like yeah, uh, that much connective tissue to to the main show, you know? Right. Yeah, it's kind of like this is it's its own feed on a practical level. And I sort of think of the seasons as being these like self-contained like stories almost like from beginning to end, we're kind of like creating an interpretive lens for a body of work or for a particular show. Whereas these are kind of infrequent or in some ways are going to be more frequent than the seasons because we're doing one right. a month. Whereas the, you know, the seasons are going to come out in, in weekly installments basically once they're prepared. But they do sort of feel like they're going to be kind of each each a, a bit of a standalone thing. And they're going to maybe draw from stuff that we talk about and can't really get into or don't fit into a season. But yeah, they're, they're individualized, you know, they're, they're not like serialized like the sure. seasons are. So for that reason, I, I agree that there shouldn't like asking you to like do a whole piece of music per bonus episode seems be, beyond the pale. You know, I was just curious as to what you what you had in mind, although thank you for like just giving the listeners the pitch for what we're doing, like with the with the (laughs) smallest cue. I love you so much for this. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes it's important to remind oneself exactly what they're doing before they start doing it. So, yeah, I mean, like by the time that people are hearing this, they'll have already heard the uh the the shonen theme that I cooked up for the our shonen JoJo's episode, uh, so maybe I'll just reuse that whenever it's like shonen time on uh, on the bonus episodes. I might just have like a little like build myself a little library of different themes that we can use for different occasions. Oh my god! But, okay, well, yeah. all right, um, okay. Don't you're giving me <laughs> ideas, and maybe that's not the best idea in the world because we're at the beginning of our first bonus episode, and now you're making me think about like the next one or three as it may be. So let's put a pin in that. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, why, yeah. Don't, why don't we tell the people also what they can probably see based on the title, but in case you're not looking or it's like autoplaying or whatever, Ian, what are we talking about on our bonus episode? So uh, as an extension of season two's brief excursion into the world of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, we are returning to dive deeper into the David production uh, season uh, covering Stardust Crusaders, the the most, I'd say most like well-known and probably the, the biggest entry point for people watching JoJo's. Uh, if you know anything about JoJo's, you know stuff about this season. Right. Um, I had a funny, a funny night a few months ago where uh, I was hanging out with my roommate who also watches anime, and I was like, "Oh, have you ever seen JoJo's Bizarre Adventure?" And they were like, "I don't think so." And so I just like pulled up on my phone, like, "Have you ever seen this man?" <laughs> and I had a picture of Dio on my phone. 
<laughs> awesome. Which I, it kind of feels like its own version of like the the hermit purple like smashing right. a, uh, an iPhone to show a picture of Dio on it or something. And and your roommate said, <laughs> "No, no, sadly. oh, but." Uh, that just means that they've got a, a really good TV show ahead of them, as do you, if you're somehow listening to this without having watched Stardust Crusaders, which uh, I'm going to admit, not a good idea, because the whole point here is we're going to kind of be covering a bunch of the stuff that we couldn't get to when we were just discussing the OVA version of the plot. Right. So I'm it, maybe maybe we won't end up talking about like the end and thus the spoilers as much. There's definitely going to be less Dio talk, I think. I think we may have exhausted... Uh, things to say about Dio Brando, at least as it pertains to Stardust Crusaders, but we're going to be jumping around and covering a bunch of other stuff because I know you really love this, uh, this arc and I, I had a great time watching it and I think it'll be a fun, fun thing to talk about just as kind of like a loose warm up for what these bonus episodes. Are right. Going to be. Well, I, I like that you sort of closed the circle there because I feel like when we started talking about like human instrumentality podcast episodes beyond Evangelion. I was the guy who did, who did it to you. Like, have you seen Jojo's bizarre adventure? Right. <laughs> and this might be a treat for my bandmates because they're the people who like sat me down, like Joseph Jojo's bizarre adventure. And I'm like, I don't know, man, the big oily, muscly <laughs> dude, like the, pre the premises. I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand what's up with the stands. Like, what is this thing? They're like, you just, need to watch it um and it will make right. itself more more clear right and i they said that to me and i was convinced and now i've said it to you and i i feel like maybe you're convinced i'm okay. convinced yeah i've i mean i've kept watching i started i started you know the fourth arc and have been enjoying that one too i still need to kind of finish that one off but yeah it's uh, i'm, I'm wait in, you know? you're okay you're in diamond is unbreakable Yes. Okay. Yeah. You've placed a terrible burden upon me because now I just want to talk about Diamond is Unbreakable, but future episode. When you're done, <laughs> when you're yeah. done, talk to me. We'll, uh, we will get there. We'll record it and make it available for people who pay us money. On there you country. go. There you go. Put a, put a penny in the tip jar and you get to hear me talk about um, how I really feel about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, <laughs> fewer, oh, no. fewer music related jokes in this season although still a lot almost there are still a few i when we got to like when i got to the steely dan episode right i almost like took a screenshot and send it to all my steely dan fans and be like what do you think mm -hmm. this is <laughs> just like what do you make mm -hmm. of this but um otherwise yeah it's a, it's a lot of classic rock it's a lot of like dad joke level puns on on classic rock right. band names and stuff like that it, it it's not something that's like front of mind as much with the uh, as it is with like Phantom Blood, you know, like Tarkus and all like Led Zeppelin, right, and, right, um, right, right, all that sort of stuff. Mr. Robert E. O. Uh, Speedwagon, Speedwagon, right, yeah, <laughs> that still cracks me up. I love that so. So much. who has? Here's a question: Who has more money, Nerve or the Speedwagon Foundation? Speedwagon See, Foundation. I, I think I so too. Say. Right. Because Nerve is constantly, there's all that talk of like budget right. issues in the in the final run. And of course, that's like prearranged. So maybe the bigger question is who has more money, Zele or the Speedwagon? Found, right. Maybe that's the crossover is like the, the big reveal is, yeah. is the Speedwagon Foundation is Zele. 
don't don't pitch that at Hideaki Anno. It might just get rolled into his new weird Marvel verse of Shin multiverse yeah, shit. Shin Jojo's yeah. Bizarre Adventure. Um not sure I want that. Shin Dio. Shin Dio. Okay. Now maybe I do want Shin Dio. When you said Mecha Dio in, in our in our Shonen episode, I feel like that planted the seed for <laughs> right. how many dumb versions of this can we come up with that would piss us off if we saw anyone else doing that. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So I guess we've already said that if, if you haven't like listened to our Shonen episode, which covers Jojo's Bizarre Adventure and like the backstory of it a little bit, talking about um, Hirohiko Araki you know, talking about Satoshi Kon's involvement, the original OVA, I recommend you do that first. And if only so, you can have some context for me asking Ian the following question. That question is, Mm -hmm. Ian, now that you've finished it, what's what's your big, you've already said you like it, but what's your big takeaway from Stardust Crusaders? Like, give it, give it to me. Hmm. Um, how to put this, uh, in a succinct way, because it's a lot of episodes. And yeah, I, for a long time, have been like, I don't want to watch a long TV show anymore. Right. You know? Like, as I've gotten older, I feel like I have, like, less and less patience for diving into something that has, like, a gazillion episodes. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of want, like, give me, like, three seasons of a good TV show and then stop. Like, right. give me like 10 episodes a season. I just want like, like condensed focused storytelling. And what I think I learned from Stardust Crusaders is that if you give me a long thing that has a distinct, really organized structure to it, right. I will be more likely to then relearn how to enjoy monster of the week stuff. Right. Because you know, it's it's about like forty three episodes. I want to say uh, it's f- on Netflix. I think it's forty nine. Don't quote me on that because I'm not looking. Okay. I mean, I can look, but I, I I'm thinking it's forty nine for what it's worth. To the best of my knowledge, oh, this says seventy four. No, okay, seventy four minus twenty seven. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, okay. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that math, but we're just going to say it's in the upper forties. Um, it is, I believe, and again, don't quote me on this too, the longest of the JoJo arcs, I think, or at least in, in terms of that makes them sense. being animated, and also for what it's worth, just going off what you said, they chunk it. It chunks easily, and part of the reason it chunks easily is because it was released into parts um mm-hmm. you get sort of like the tarot half and then just the egypt half uh as, yeah. as sort of like dis, dis, distinct pieces right right exactly uh, and what i realized like you know the episodes are about 20 minutes or so and if you like once you get used to skipping intros and outros it kind of flies and what i would do is it's like it's sort of like a bedtime show you yes know? like i would watch like two episodes before bed and I would get just far along enough and they'd make just enough progress across the map that I still felt like I was getting somewhere. And in some ways, having watched the OVA before really getting into the meat of, uh, of Stardust, I knew where it was going and I knew that no matter what, I was going to love where it was going. Right. And that made it really easy for me to like put up with some of the stupider 
smaller stands that they had to deal with along the way. Because it's like, I know it's not going to end with a whimper. It will end with a bang. Sure. And I can just, you know, okay, tonight was bad luck of the draw. Oh, well. On to the next day, on to the next. Night. Is that is that a Darby the Gambler joke? I suppose so. Yeah, well, sure. Um, that one was not not one of the bad ones. That's what I in the, once I finally got to like the point where I was like ready to finish the show. I think I watched like. Like, I don't want to say 10 episodes, it was not 10 episodes, but it felt like I just like blazed through the final run of episodes really quickly. I think like basically the the Darby episode to the end i watched in like one marathon sitting because yeah i was so hooked by that uh that fight yeah i think it e- yes so like the final the final let's call that a third it's not quite a third it's more like a quarter but let's say like the, the final quarter does sort of like run together really well i think mm-hmm. i also think it begins pretty strong and then there is like kind of a lag in the middle i think it's a little long personally maybe some of the two-parters didn't really need to be two-parters however you know before we before we get into that uh, here's what i'd like to to do why don't we talk about the cast of characters Right, because like in our yes. episode, we talk a lot about Jotaro, we talk a lot about Dio, but we don't really get into the B cast. But like it, one of the interesting things about this season of JoJo in particular is is that like is the strength of the B cast is like how prominent mm-hmm. the B cast is, how important they are to the arcs, how many stand fights they they get. Surely Cormac McCarthy doesn't want to be compared to Hirohiko Araki if he's aware of him. <laughs> but like Stardust Crusaders is is kind of like Blood Meridian, where it's like, here's your main character, and then halfway through the book, he just disappears until the very end. Right? Yes. Um yeah. so I would say maybe maybe a, a better example in terms of the uh the blending of tones and styles would be Moby Dick, which I just finished, which has kind of a very sort of Jojo-ish opening of like Right. You know, you just like suddenly like now that I'm saying it, I can like see all of the, um, you know, the, the noises and whatnot and like all, all of the text that shows up on screen anytime something like mildly intimidating happens. Right. Once Ishmael gets into the, the bedroom with Queequeg <laughs> like, <gasps> and then they become best friends, you know, and yeah, like yeah. the ca- the the cast of characters on the Pequod kind of feel like a bunch of Joe Bros for sure, for sure, and and also like the strong homo homoerotic undertones is is yes. a similarity. <laughs> I guess you're I guess you're then making old Joe into Ahab and Dio into Moby Dick. In that feels yeah yeah. Now that oh man, I'm I'm gonna. I didn't even realize I was gonna go there with this, but yes, <laughs> I'm I'm now gonna keep putting it together in the back of my head okay. of like how, how the various characters i guess that makes is starbuck starbuck is kakioin um there isn't really a jotaro like queequeg would be the closest to jotaro except queequeg uh, is obviously polnareff right is queequeg is obviously like here's the b-tier character that's actually no, the main character i think it's Stub is Polnareff. Well, okay. You've you've read Moby Dick more recently than I have, so you <laughs> would know better. I'm pulling on senior year of high school. So, he, okay, continue. Please take me through. No, that's basically as far as I've gotten, because, like, Avdol is where it gets tricky, because I don't really think there is an, an Avdol equivalent in, in Moby Dick. But 
it's tough. I don't know. I guess that's also like Quag because Avdol's the brown guy. Well, yeah, but that's the thing is even if you were to go that route, like the cast of Moby Dick is pretty diverse. There's right. like al- almost all of the main harpooners are not white. Right. So there, there isn't. And even to that point, one of the things I really like about the Joe Bros is it's like a, a pretty interestingly diverse group of dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you got like two teenagers from Japan, uh, an Egyptian fortune teller. Right. A, uh, a Pepe Le Pew, if he was a human being, and <laughs> an old British guy. Yeah, you know <laughs> that's true. Um, old American, old American. Yeah, he's he's from England, grew up in America. That that kind of. You're right. You're right. I, yeah. I think of him as a Brooklyn boy, but you're 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 right. <laughs> you're right. Okay, so let's let's go through these characters one 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 by one. At least the ones we we missed. So the the first mm-hmm. character you get in the show that we didn't talk about is, and you've already brought him up is Avdol. Yes. So let's, let's do Avdol for a minute. Avdol. Yeah. He's, he's an interesting character because he becomes more interesting. The more the other characters kind of get to bounce off of him. Like he's sort of like overly proper, really mannered and like really self serious and kind of has this like, you know, he's able to lay out the stakes because he understands the stands better than anyone else and is sort of able to help explain and like bring all the other characters into the world that they're in. Mm-hmm. But that kind of makes him sort of a boring exposition machine until there's the sort of humorous conflict between him and Polnareff constantly. Right. You know, like he he makes a more interesting foil than kind of a standalone character on his own. Correct. But... I, you know, one of the cooler character designs, love the fit. The fit is fire, no pun intended. Um, you can intend the pun. <laughs> I just, I've only said, this is the second time you've called me out on doing that, which is fair because it is an annoying tick, but I only do it if I didn't think of the pun until it came out of my mouth. Okay. You know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's all I'm trying to say is like, it's really a humble brag. Got it. From a writer's perspective, mm. saying no pun intended just means like, I'm cleverer than I thought I was, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But why are you, okay. I I don't want to go down that that sidebar. Yes. But but yes, I actually think Avdol has one of the strongest character designs in the show. Maybe in like mm-hmm. all the arcs. Uh I also think Magician's Red looks cool is like a cool yeah. looking stand. Mm-hmm. Birdhead guy. It it just lots of fire. Lots of fire. You know? I'm into fire. Te- I'm a fire type Pokemon myself. So like I'm, I'm in generally into like people, the, the generic flamethrower ability guy is usually like the, the person I sort of gravitate to anyway for silly reasons. Totally. Even so I, I like Avdol and, and, and um, he does, we can, we can spoil some things. He does him as Polnareff's foil is, does sort of become the point And like, it, he kind of exists to add stakes for Polnareff after a while, right? Because he, he mm-hmm. get this thing where you think he's dead. That's like emotional. Right. He's not dead. That's also in a Polnareff episode. Oh, that's emotional. And then mm-hmm. when he dies at the end, he's with Polnareff, right? Right. Well, he dies to save Polnareff. Polnareff. Right. So yeah. it, it their relationship is sort of interesting in that it, like you can see them figuring out like what to do with him as the as the story evolves and it becomes. Oh, he's him versus Jotaro isn't interesting, but Polnareff right. versus him is interesting. Because Avdol and, and Jotaro, they may differ in how they express their self-seriousness. Right. But they they both view the situation with like 
utmost uh sincerity and like understand the stakes like they're both taking the the quest like as this like grave mortal danger Mm -hmm. it's just that jotaro is doing his like clint eastwood thing where he doesn't say anything and then just like does the the single act of brutality that solves the problem right and whereas avdol is more likely to kind of get flustered and yeah sort of expense with exposition constantly in order to like carry the story along right um you kind of get the sense he's a bit more worldly than a lot of the other characters too Mm -hmm. like as they're going like through egypt and then up into like asia and then down to uh the middle east like he he's sort of the tour guide in a lot of ways sure 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 and when you're introduced to him he's in the first episode he's introduced along with old joe so maybe maybe we do old old Joe now. I just because old Joseph Joestar and I share a first name, I like naturally have a conflicted relationship with him. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um how do you feel about like spool that out for us? What what are your conflicts about Joseph Joestar? Okay, so Joseph Joestar is like un, to me he's he's tough cuz he's the baton carrying character right Mm -hmm. he's your transition from the second arc into the new one i don't as we covered in our previous episode i don't like the second arc very much Uh, i think it's a weak point right but the Mm -hmm. weird strength of it is is that joseph joestar is probably on paper the most interesting jojo because his his like primary character like the thing he's known for is like kind of being a coward right and using that that cowardice to his advantage right. in in the second arc, like the thing that he will often do is t- like tactically retreat in order to like gain an advantage over his enemy. Mm-hmm. That's his that's his move, right? And he's also mm-hmm. canonically kind of a douchebag. Yes, yeah. not faithful to his his romantic partners in a in, in like a bad way. This will repeat in other arcs, right? And they mm-hmm. don't do this mm-hmm. so much, but you kind of get the sense at some point that like a lot of what's going on in the individual episode might be like fixing something that old Joe does that's stupid. Yeah, he's kind of atoning for his past and in, in his own way, like by extension, he sort of represents like Joe Toro's connection to his family. Right. And therefore his conflicts with his family. Right. You know? And the way that you described it in like our Shonen episode is that like the arc is really Jotaro learning to reconcile himself as an individual with like himself in his family lineage. Right. You know? Right. Um, so Joseph being sort of a, a fuck up and a cad and, you know, having been sort of reckless in his youth is like the, the way by which we overcome each of these barriers with Jotaro. Sure. But he's also like an incredibly ripped old man, which is like just like a weird flex. He's <laughs> like he's like he's as ripped as Jotaro is, and he's like probably needs to start contacting AARP at some point. If I don't know if right. I've got the timeline exactly right, but it like he's got a gray beard, gray hair. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he he's um if he was a celebrity, like the actor playing him would would need to be in uh men's hair dye rub in hair dye commercials right yeah yeah 
It's sort of like the 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 period we're in with like Brad Pitt now, almost where like Brad Pitt's rocking the gray hair and whatnot. But I don't, he might even be too young. I don't know. Uh, he's too. I think if you're thinking about a person right now, it's Steve Carell. Steve Carell has like embraced the I am gray Steve Carell now, and I'm making it right. work for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. It's just he's not an action guy, so you don't think of him when you think no. of of old Joe. Right. <laughs> So there you yeah, go. I mean, if this was if this was, you know, Marvel and Disney, they're, you know, just continuing to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Who hasn't been in one of these movies? Who can we give HGH to? You mm-hmm. know, like who will who <laughs> so. will agree to an indefinite multi-million dollar, but we own you contract. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I guess Brad but Pitt let's is not on be that list. kind of podcast. No, yeah. <laughs> if we aren't already. OK, so there's old Joe. OK, I will say that he he sort of also functions a a bit there's kind of like a wheel almost of like what traits each of the bros have in common with each other. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and like the interconnectivity of all of them is, is like part of what makes it such a fun ensemble is like, you can kind of pair off different chunks of them and they're each able to do different things. So like Avdol and Joseph have the connection of kind of like entering the story and being the ones with like the more, the most institutional knowledge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And although much of Joseph's uh, institutional knowledge is revealed to be faulty and right. <laughs> out of date, and right. he ends up not being good at like most of the things he says he's good at, which also means that like Polnareff, he's kind of a lot of the comic relief. Right. And I think they, they kind of figured this out over the course of the show, but eventually they realized what makes him really funny is that he's the voice actor is just really good at screaming profanity right like at the top of his lungs like all of the like oh shit oh my god (laughs) yeah uh never cease to get a chuckle out of me always funny (laughs) i feel the same yes i i agree yeah, yeah. He and Polner have kind of served the same function, where like usually, like they're the zany one, and one of the other characters is playing straight man. Mm-hmm. And usually, his straight man is either Jotaro or Avdol. Yeah, I'd say the way that they usually set it up is that like Avdol is Polnareff's straight man, mm-hmm. and Jotaro is Joseph's straight straight man. Because like the only times that jo- Jotaro seems to lose his cool is like when he's like getting on a plane with Joseph or right. like Joseph is like, well, this is like the best car I could get. And that's where you get the like, yeah, yeah, like, like good grief thing, you know, <laughs> but it's but I, I, I do. I like Jotaro and old Joe to, together. And there's some there's some fun little moments. The second Darby fight is is actually mm, like mm-hmm. i think very middle of the road as far as jojo's bizarre adventure goes They're like you must beat me in a video game boss fight is i think maybe a bit rote at at this point yeah just to if we want to cover that briefly the the things that make it interesting one just the image of star platinum in a baseball yeah uh, uniform is just that's just funny mm-hmm and the the datedness of the video games that they're playing right. makes it an interesting excuse me, kind of like period piece because the whole story takes place in the eighties. Late eighties. So they're playing all of these like late eighties video games. Right. You know, 
th- they do a good job of doing the Tron thing where like you're like they as characters are watching like a bad 8-bit NES game or whatever. And then when mm-hmm. you're inside the game with the stands, it's supposed to be like very high tech. But right. the CGI physics are bad, so it's still obviously like super clunky. I choose to see yeah. that as like an intentional choice that I like. But I did like that reveal that you know, your expectation is Jotaro is a juvenile delinquent. And he's 15. He's got to be great at video games. Right. And then they're like, oh, you're terrible at video games. Whereas like old Joe is weirdly good at them. So like the big reveal in that episode is old Joe has been secretly playing the video games the whole time. Yeah, it's that's a, a great case of like. Araki like writing himself out of what seems like an impossible setup. Right. Where like the enemy stand can read minds and you know, how do we make it compelling that they're playing a video game? Like how is this deception going to work? And the, it's as much a trick on the viewer as it is a trick on the enemy. Cause you're almost watching it from the villain's perspective right. compared to the heroes. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it kind of fits that like the one thing that you would not expect joe to be good at compared to all the things that he says that he's good at his video games you know it's video games right and jotaro would never admit to not playing a video game because it would never come up but right he's like he's god awful at it he's too much of a jock it's great it's pretty funny okay so there's old joe if i'm going down the list okay the next two characters i struggle with and i struggle with them for different reasons the first joe bro who gets added to the team. So if you're starting the Super Stardust Crusaders RPG, your opening team is Young Joe, Old Joe, and and Avdol. Avdol. Right? Those are your right. three starting characters. And the first boss that then becomes a character that you can switch in or out is Kakuin. Yes. Noriaki Kakuin, who's the other Japanese teenager. Like Avdol, he sort of disappears from the story for a long time and then comes back. And uh, it seems to me that Kakyoin is maybe like a strong character design. You know, right. looks like Neo. Good haircut. Good haircut. Yeah. Fun stand. Mm-hmm. I like I like Hierophant Green. Um, I like the idea of like a thing that throws emeralds at you at high speed. And can be like the stretchy stand. Stretchy stand is good. He's he's really, I, I kind of see where you're going with this. And I do agree, uh, I think, with your general assessment. Like the stand is really cool. Right. The character's kind of thin. There's not a lot there with with him. He gets he gets like a big send off at the end. You know, it's like, oh, he died fighting Dio. But he like shows them how Dio's power works. And it's like, I see why that's mm-hmm. important. But Kakuin doesn't really have an arc right right he kind of he already completes the the big emotional beat really early right you know which is that he gets his ass beat by jotaro as most of the world does Mm -hmm. um and then realizes like oh i was really terrified of dio and i gave in to my fear Mm -hmm. so like his quest is overcoming that fear right you know and they do try, like, it is an interesting look into, like, the life of a young stand user. Like, but the problem is all of his emotional baggage is end-loaded to the moment when he dies. Right. You know? And that's when you have all of this, like, oh, he's a loner. He, like, never thought he could connect with anyone else. Shades of Shinji Ikari. 
there's know, definitely and, yeah there's some shinji energy in him but it's never it never shows up in most of the story it's just like this thing we learn about him in about his past where like he feels like as a stand user like his parents thought he was insane mm-hmm. and he couldn't relate to other kids right and his one friend is his stand which is like that's a touching idea i just wish that there could have been like more of that in the story to make that payoff feel like you know more in ingrained in the story mm-hmm. uh which i think separates him from the the final joe bro that we're gonna bring up. right real quick before we do that i was just gonna say it, it does sort of seem at the beginning like they're setting up kakuin to be joe taro's main rival character like almost the mm-hmm. the the vegeta archetype maybe um you know yeah. he's as i recall he's like he's sort of brainy he's good at school you know he's supposed to be like kind of like this um this isn't an archetype you get i think so much in in uh american storytelling but there is this archetype specifically in japan of like the cruel arch nerd yeah the the guy yeah. who's the, the head of the school light club. yagami yes yeah. light yagami Ex- exactly yes that is that is the guy uh shinji kari after he's been totally blackpilled Right. Yeah. Right. If there is no supernatural element in Evangelion, Shinji becomes like a, a Kakuin. It's like, oh, he runs the chess club and like <laughs> maybe gropes girls at parties. No one likes him, mm-hmm. but he's really good at school. He's kind of a jackass, right? Thinks he's better than everybody. Yeah. 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 Or the young Gendo Ikari, right? This mm-hmm. is who Gendo was mm-hmm. when he was in high school, right? And it seems like they sort of set him up to be like the, the anti Jotaro. And then never really explore that very much. There really isn't any avenue to do it. No. You know, like once because they all become so convinced in their like beautifully simple minded shonen way of like the righteousness of their cause. There's not really excuse for any of them to be like dicks to each other with the exception of Polnareff because that's just. He's a much more richly defined character for better and for worse. Some <laughs> you know? reason. Okay, you're right. Okay, you're right. We've said it. Now let's do now let's do Polnareff. The Jean-Pierre Polnareff. Jean-Pierre. Yeah. Not only maybe like the big one of the biggest selling points of this particular arc, but also maybe my personal least favorite part with a few exceptions this is this is the the trickiest line to walk because he's he's so frequently the cause he's the cause and solution to all of the problems in this show (laughs) (laughs) after a certain point yes right also i think not my favorite character design the the tube top it gets a bit grating to look at the, after the one strap tube top. What is, yeah, he's like prematurely graying. I always sort of, so thought it was like a Jim Jarmusch, just like perma gray kind of look. He, he, it, I, he has Jim Jarmusch's hair. Yeah. But he's got a very eighties haircut and very eighties look. He's the most eighties man of the cast. Yes, I think. absolutely. This is this is a man who, like, if he did not develop a stand, would be in a new wave band that went nowhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he also, for whatever reason, seems to become the main character after a while. You get like mm-hmm. specifically, like, I think in the very middle of of this arc, you just get a lot of him. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I think maybe you kind of suffer from a little bit of diminishing returns. Yeah. A lot of the episodes, once they get to, you know, the Indian subcontent and onward are like Polnareff getting the gang in trouble. Right. Because he's too arrogant. He's too horny. He, you know, misunderstands some sort of social situation. Uh, right. He's too good to take a shit in a public bathroom. All of these kind of things, right. you know, end up causing the trouble that everyone else gets into. Um, and they do milk the hell out of that trope for the second half. Yeah. But it's funny because for those exact same reasons, he ends up having kind of this interesting, like guilt complex. Yeah. That like comes around by the end. Right. In order for it to work, you need to have like, been like, Oh my God, this hapless idiot, you know, this arrogant Frenchman. He's the bad white guy. Yeah, exactly. That's him and Joseph both kind of have this kind of like European chauvinism in the way that they are doing this like world tour Mm -hmm. and constantly think that they are better than the locals in one way or another. And it always bites them in the ass. Right. Um, which is in terms of the genre, I really like because a lot of these sort of like around the world in 80 days style travelogues are often told, I think from like an explicitly either American or European perspective. Right. And a trip from Japan to Cairo is such an interesting like angle on this type of genre that like I had never considered like a Japanese version of this kind of story before. Right. And it's not something that they beat you over the head with, but it's like, it's there and how it's framed for sure. 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 I mean, it's also, again, I, I think I said this when we talked about judges the first time, I don't think that like, there's a lot of like explicitly like a, a political agenda to this show. I don't think, mm-hmm. um, no. but I, I think the show does have like some politics and it is sort of charged that like, this is a show that ends in North Africa and mm-hmm. is about like, a French man discovering cultural humility to some extent, like that's Uh really charged in some ways, whether it's intended to be or not, it's like how it worked out. Like I've I've been thinking a lot about your, your line in the Shonen episode, which you can obviously tell that both of us re-listened to before (laughs) having this conversation about the the way that a lot of shonen kind of feels like improv. Yeah. You know, where it's like developed as it goes. And I kind of feel like Araki like initially included Polnareff as comedic relief. Yeah. But just sort of wrote himself into making him a really interesting character as it went on. Yes. Like, for example, like Avdol's first death to me feels like trying to give the story a shot in the arm to like establish. Like, oh, no, the stakes are real. Like, right. And to establish the, uh, what is it? The hanged man as like the, the first like really serious threat that they fight. The first like um, scary stand, yeah. right? It's the, it, it's where horror comes back into the, into the storytelling after like a, a mm-hmm. prolonged absence. There's kind of like the shape of horror early on, like the way that Jotaro is like understanding his stand initially as being like, I'm possessed by a demon. Yeah, let's pause <laughs> you know? for, can we, can we pause that for one second? Because jumping ahead, but yeah. I did want to say, what a striking way to open 
a story as like yes. the story opens in a jail where a juvenile delinquent has forced the police to arrest him for his own safety because he believes that he is possessed by a demon. That's the opening fucking scene. Like after, yeah. after finding a vampire's coffin, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where does it come from? <laughs> and it's a great opening, but it's like, it's a brilliant opening. Yeah. Where is it? It defies a, a, all your expectations again. Cause like, here's this like, you know, tough Clint Eastwood type who's locked himself up already just sort of like, I want to know what happened here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then it immediately becomes funny. And I think this is kind of the, the general like breathing of uh, Stardust Crusaders is like horrific concept, really funny punchline. Because when Jotaro's yes. in jail, what is his demon doing but giving him copies of Shonen Jump and beer? Right. You know? <laughs> it's like nabbing things for him. And yeah. if I remember correctly, isn't isn't his like attempt to prove to the police that he's possessed? He's like, give me your gun. I'm going to shoot myself. And he tries. Yeah, he takes, he takes, he takes the, the gun, gun, tries to shoot himself, and Star Platinum catches the bullet. And he's like, possessed, Right. And I'm like, that's, that is uninterpretation of this crazy thing that just happened. But like, <laughs> it is, it is a, it is a weird, strong vibe to open a show with a character that is clearly not suicidal, mm -hmm. failing to kill himself right in front of someone and stealing a police officer's firearm to do it. <laughs> it's so wild. It is off the chain from go. How can you not be engaged? Yes, that's absolutely part of the momentum that carries you through, I think, to Hanged Man. And then Hanged Man is the next kind of obvious level up in, in terms of like the uh, ambition and like stylistic seriousness that's going on. Right. All of this is to kind of circle back to to Polnareff. Like Avdol's death becomes kind of, I think, a source of shame and like survivor's guilt for for Polnareff, which yeah resonates really well with his motivation as a character as like getting revenge for his sister's death. Right. Uh, so the same person who killed his sister just killed Avdol, someone who he thought was a pain in his ass, and now has this guilt for feeling that way. The problem is it takes a kind of a while for th all of that to like condense in the core of his character into something really meaningful. Um, but it does kind of twice. Like there's judgment where, which I think is like a, a weird episode in that. What a strange conceit, but I'm like, I'm like weird flex. Okay. I, yeah, I, that is one of the ones where I, and that's where you meet Avdol's dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually just him. Right. <laughs> uh, judgment is one of my least favorite parts of the show, although it's obviously kind of important. So go on. Yeah. This is, again, like the Polnareff stuff is almost entirely mixing like really obnoxious stuff with like really good stuff. Yes. Um. Because the conceit of like they're they find this island where Avdol is pretending to be his dad to trick Polnareff into not it's like doesn't make any sense no. and it's just there to like string along the viewer. But then you get like you know Polnareff confronted with the stand that can grant wishes, and so his two wishes are to bring back the two people who he believe like died because of him. Right. 
And then, of course, they become not themselves. They're like these flesh eating zombies. It turns into uh, the evil you, dead, right? Yeah. It's we're, yes. weird. We're stranded yeah. on an island and then it's a genie and then it's the evil dead. Right. <laughs> In five minutes. And then it's a punchline because Abdul was alive the whole time. Right. You know, it's it's a really wild sequence of events. Right. Including the like really bizarre, like sort of implied incestuous thing between like zombie Sherry and Polnareff. Like there's some weird subtext there that I, I don't know what to make. Of. I don't know if it's a subtext or if it's just a Rocky pushing your buttons, right? Like, like I, mm-hmm. after a while I interpret like a lot of this stuff, a lot of like the weird sexual undertones of this arc in particular as, yeah. as just a Rocky sense of humor being like, does this make you feel weird? It's kind of weird, right? What do you think about that? <laughs> you fucking weirdo reading JoJo's yeah. Bizarre Adventure. I'm going to draw some <laughs> zombies now. Like, that's the way right. I interpret yeah, yeah. it. Like, that's that's a, a good read on it. And so then, the, like, Polnareff's survivor's guilt becomes kind of a joke until the vanilla ice fight when it becomes just like, I was crying. I will, I kid you not, like, despite having watched the fight one time before in the OVA, I was, like, really surprised at how emotional I got. Right. As, like, Polnareff has come to terms with, like, Avdol just died for real to save me. Iggy, the dog we haven't talked about yet, it is, like, also dying, and here I am, like, stranded in Egypt about to, like, die because this fucking vampire has like ruined my life right and pulls himself together to like actually avenge all of them you know all of the all of the pain that's been caused to him he he finds a way to pull it together and just the badass moment of like you went with dio and you've now become weak to the sun and now i'm going to fucking kill you it's just like after you've had me (laughs) on the ropes for two episodes straight Right. Mm-hmm. Also, can I just point out that sequence is great, but I, I just want to say it's this has got to be like another Iraqi sense of humor thing, right? Where he's like, yeah, and the second last boss is going to be Vanilla Ice. The rapper? <laughs> no, another white guy named Vanilla Ice. Right. Uh, whose stand is Cream, who is like another appropriating, you know right white guy band but unlike but unlike vanilla ice is like critically acclaimed like you you know i'm like is this is this you like making fun of eric clapton or like making fun of vanilla ice or like there's there's you're just listing stuff that like music that you know about (laughs) i don't know how he does it but i i just wonder if there is like some weird element of like insider joke cultural criticism to the way that people are named you could go down a lot of, I think, ultimately unfruitful paths of inquiry with that, but there's just enough to keep you exploring. Because like, it's not complete enough as a set of metaphors that you really could do it for every stand and every enemy and every character. No, not at all. There's just enough that makes you like, but what if? But what you know? exactly? Yeah. That does pay off. I think it's worth noting, if we're talking about like Iraqi pushing buttons... I'm just going to go ahead and say the (laughs) two, the two fights that I knew I did not want to rewatch are both Polnareff fights. And they Mm -hmm. are, I don't like death, even though like death is sort of like a beloved canonic 
fights. Oh, like I, the 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 Manish boy, the like Freddy Krueger death or no death. Okay, maybe I'm remembering the wrong stand. Death is the baby, the Dream Grim Reaper baby. Yes, I think I think of that as more of a Kakioin fight because he's the one that is when he's awake still remembers and everyone else is forgotten. Oh, you're right. And so you're it right. Sort of I'm seems wrong. Like he's cracking under pressure. I, that's like the one kind of like, oh, this is a Kakuin episode. This is cool. Like this is different than right. We get so few of these that this is nice to have like an insight into his character and the idea that like maybe he's not tough enough. Right. To to handle the stress of of traveling and all that. I miss is uh, I misspoke. You're correct. However, I I don't particularly like the 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 death fight. I'm I'm not super. Mm-hmm. You're right, Freddy Krueger. I'm not super into the like the Freddy Kruegeriness of, sure. of it. Ooh, it's a weird dream circus. I don't care. You're not really into evil clowns as a thing. No, I I think it's a bit done. You know, I'm like, oh really? It's a oh, it's the baby. Oh, you never suspect the baby. Okay, whatever. I think it's maybe my whateverness about that is why in my memory it was Polnareff, not Kakyoin. So totally. there you go. And the other one is, to me, the low point of the of this season. Um, I cannot do the set episode. It is so fucking weird. Really uh, weird. I, I think kind of tasteless. I agree. Although genuinely scary. Like that is like, I do remember watching that being like, this is genuinely like the most frightening this show has gotten it feels like a lot of the times like children's cartoons like again this is kind of like mirroring a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the shonen episode but like there would be like one that got by the censors you know right as a like as a kid i remember watching like tons of of these shows and there would always be like one episode per show where it's like how did they let this on tv right and even for a show that feels like aimed at an older audience and generally more mature, the set fight feels like someone should have stopped this from being uh, in this show. Cause it is yeah. really freaky and genuinely upsetting and like unpleasant, even during the parts that are not the fight, you know, parts are supposed to be funny or not, are not funny. Are not funny. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> tough very very tough and i i think also sort of tough because it comes set comes right before you get the big swing toward the end mm-hmm. and right after two of my favorite sequence <laughs> yes like like two i think it's, very it's, two i think it's like two excellent little mini arcs and then set and then just a powerhouse to the end exactly I like that that part, that chunk feels like everyone kind of gets their unique side story. The the group gets split. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I wish they didn't put that one there, you know? I wish they didn't put it anywhere, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, where do we want to take this? Because, like, part of me is like, do we, do we want to talk about some of the boss fights, or do we want to, or do we want to get to... I Italy? think so, yeah, because what were the episodes that you did single out is like i i really want to rewatch these we already talked about the hanged man mm-hmm. i thought that was a i thought that was like a high point i think the the cleverest kill the, the most clever solution to any enemy that they beat sure um but again actually interestingly enough now that i'm thinking about thinking about it is a is a kakuin comes up with the solution right 
Um, so maybe they, they probably needed to just lean into him being like the brainy overachiever more. Sure. Cause the, the way they beat it's this enemy that's bouncing around from reflective surface to reflective surface. And one of the things that I love is like somehow every single stand almost when they show up, the first thing that crosses my mind is like, I do not know how they're going to win. Yes. This they seem completely fucked at the beginning of like every single fight Mm -hmm. and having this solution where they're, they trick the hanged man into bouncing through people's eyes, which initially seems like, well, now they're completely screwed. There's no way to stop this guy. And then using the reflection of money, like the reflective surface of a coin to throw it up in the air, have people look at the coin and then use that to kill him. It's like, wow, cool. Again, like Araki just like wrote himself out of something that seemed impossible to solve. That's genuinely clever. Yeah, that's sort of like the joy of a lot of these like sort of monster of the week episodes. And I remember that being mm-hmm. one where I, I I was powering through the series when I watched it the first time. But I remember thinking like I gotta go watch this whole sequence again to figure out like exactly what was going on. Like it's not the yeah. most apparent. It's it's very clever, right? That also is is like the episode that introduces Whole Horse, who is like the rare comic relief character I kind of dig. Interesting. I didn't really like him very much. He's mostly, I kind of like him here. Yeah. And I really don't like him the second time around. That joke felt very played out by the time it happened. The whole Zenyatta Mandata thing. Boingo, boingo. Boingo, boingo. However you want to localize it. Right. That... That whole arc is, I think, uh, well, just feels like maybe they wanted to do something lighter. Yeah. And at that point in the series, part of it is like, no, just get to just just get to the end. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't love that. But the cool thing about Whole Horse is not only is he like another like skewering of the white guy. Right. Yes. Which is right. Fun. But he's the only real chance you get to see he's your inside view into what it's like being one of Dio's minions. And yeah, that's true. And, I do really like that scene. Right. Yeah. And he, he gets this report. He's like, what the fuck is Dio doing? What have I gotten myself into? This is mm-hmm. weird. Right. Like I, I, I like really appreciate him being in the story for that. So th- there needed to be some sort of perspective. Cause like, this is the thing you always wonder with these kind of shows. It's like, why would you work for this guy? Like, right. What, what is convincing you to like keep working for this fucking asshole who's like killing his own minions? Like, what is the experience like being a henchman? You know, right. The one other exception is I don't remember which other uh, enemy stand user it was, but there's one of them like doubles down on basically falling in love with Dio and being like so convinced of Dio's like horrifying like truly awesome to use the word like literally beauty right in a way right i was like oh cool again glad you're just acknowledging that this is like part of the text instead of something that like fans get weird about on the internet it's like no this is what we're doing here you know i don't i know that that happens i don't remember that's not one i rewatched. Mm-hmm. maybe that's the lovers it might be yeah, Steely Dan. Yeah, um, I know it's it's cl- as they're getting close for sure. Well, that's that's the lovers is actually weirdly kind of early, right? So it's not it's not that. It might be Geb. It might be Geb. 
someone someone I'm sure in the comments maybe will uh, correct us. You do get a little of that with Maria and Bast. She she has like yeah. an, a, a throwaway line about it. She's like she's like I like Dio even more, and then boom gets smacked, which is like. That's an episode that I, I sort of like was a little like meh on the first time I watched it. And then you texted me some some very funny stills that made me like, I need to rewatch this just to like enjoy it. And as yeah. I rewatched it, I was like, this is a masterful piece of this show. This is when it's yeah. funny and it works, right? It is easily the funniest, like funny villain that they fight. Um, right. <laughs> um <laughs> It's, I'm losing it. I'm just watching it. It's such an obvious like joke, and it it is kind of like almost a bit maybe like gay panicky. But to me, the joke is more on like Avdol's self seriousness and Joseph's like you know rigid straight. Still, like he's yeah, rigid straight. He's that guy you like, know who's like it's it's like um he's the republican center who you know is gonna get caught in an airport bathroom where it's like <laughs> you're so straight that it can't quite be true and the fact that they're being manipulated by this like beautiful woman into doing this is like just an extra layer of of humor to it right you know? Cor- correct i read that one i see the gay panic reading my read of that more is maybe like responding to the fan base maybe like maybe like a rocky mm-hmm. being like oh you think you think my comic is homoerotic <laughs> i mean is that like a thing you're into because i could do more of that i could do a whole <laughs> boss fight of that if you want and make it weird for right you. would you like that you fucking weirdo <laughs> you're reading jojo's bizarre adventure that's that's my read of 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 that fight and i am here i am here for it and i'm and i'm here mm-hmm. for it's like constant skewering of old joe's caddishness exactly yeah right. it feels like it it's chosen its targets very well in that regard mm-hmm. um and it's also like to your point it's a great like balance between the the really serious and probably most like action heavy fight right uh, one of the more action heavy fights right before which is the anubis yeah fight which is i i love it that's just uh, a that great little terrific. great little like supernatural action episode mm-hmm. just fun and also like <laughs> jotaro literally doing the like call an ambulance but not for me he's the only guy in the whole show where it's like yeah, you can you can make jokes like that. You can just say yeah. like a ridiculous tough guy thing and it'll it'll work. Mm-hmm. Because he's the face, but he has heal energy. Yeah, yeah. Which is fun. So uh, any other episodes that stuck out to you as like yes. must watches? Yes. Okay. So I think one of my favorite sequences is the Pet Shop Boys fight. Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up. Okay, because this is... Best episode of Digimon ever. It is <laughs> It is as if... And, you know, it's funny. is some... Not Digimon, but the main... <laughs> she did not write this episode. But the main episode writer of not only this arc, but all of them, is a woman named Yasuo Kobayashi. And Yasuo mm. Kobayashi, before this, was a lead writer on Yu-Gi-Oh! Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I totally see it. She's written a bunch of stuff. She was also before this she was on Death Note. 
mm-hmm. Claymore, um, Cyborg 009, a bunch of shit. I don't know what the fuck it is, if I'm perfectly honest. She was also doing Attack on Titan at the same time. Very busy. Very yeah. busy. Uh, she's she's a, she's a shonen tactical fight queen. Uh, mm-hmm. When it when it comes to screen screenplay writing, right? It is the best episode of Digimon ever, and it is kind of fun for like a show that is ostensibly not about animals to to have the like. What if Dio had a pet? Right. What would Dio's yeah. pet be? It'd uh, be a bird that killed everything it saw. An, an incredibly mean bird with ice powers such a cool blend you right know? like you would think like oh it's a bird it, it has wind stuff no no ice ice stuff and it's also the only time that you get like a sense of iggy as a character really mm-hmm. iggy's internal life iggy's yeah. internal monologue and they god here this is just amazing writing and storytelling they ease you into the one-off world of we're going to be inside the animal's heads so incrementally and Mm -hmm. so well because it starts with the narrator talking and the narrator goes but izzy was iggy was thinking something something else and then the next time he goes but then iggy thought to himself and then you hear iggy's voice for the first time as an internal monologue and for like Mm -hmm. a little bit you get like it like narrating the story novelistically and then by the end, you just get Iggy monologuing. But and I think this is fucking brilliant. You never get Pet Shop's internal monologue. Yes. So it's yeah. like the only boss fight. It sets you up for like Dio, where like the bad guy isn't a joke, right? Like mm-hmm. Pet Shop is a bird, but it's also like a terrifying, not goofy in the slightest enemy like just a sadistic fucking predator right and that you never get any dialogue from pet shop just makes just makes it all work even more for me i think it also helps speed up the action in a really cool way Mm -hmm. because you know this is like one of the the tropes of these sort of things it's like the villain will eventually get cocky and explain what they're doing or will have some sort of monologue about why they're so evil or something along those lines but instead you have the internal monologue of one animal and then just the hunter. Right. You know? And so the action is constantly moving because Pet Shop doesn't ever stop. Right. You know? And that, that I think, makes it one of the more fun episodes just as, like, a pure action set piece because it's moving at a, at a nonstop rate in a way that the other ones don't. I agree. It's also one of the episodes, I think, that sort of... <sighs> even though it's so atypical for Jojo because it's the two of all the things we've just said, it sets up what I think becomes the archetypical great Jojo fight in not only this arc, but future arcs. And that Mm. is like weirdly having some knowledge about natural science and physics is important to understanding how you, we got into this situation and how we're going to get, to get out, to get out of it. I think you're going to reach that apex and I know you're not there, but earlier in the last like right at the end of last year they dropped the first part of stone ocean Mm -hmm. which is the the arc in florida and there is one fight in stone ocean that is like reading a jijin lu novel like wow it's just straight up like did you know in zero gravity that cold would work differently and create a vacuum (laughs) That would make this fight even harder than it has to be. And it's like all of all of this happening in what is supposed to be just like a, a prison fight. Uh, yeah. So like I see the pet shop fight is setting up 
this is teeing up JoJo's ability to do things like that in the future. Mm-hmm. A brief shout out, just because I don't think we're going to talk about him too much more. But as long as we're talking about the animal fights, just just like the <laughs> the strength fight on the boat is so ludicrous that it kind of similarly opens up the possibility of like anything goes <laughs> like right. it can be anything it could be anyone ridiculous stuff is going to happen in this show here's an orangutan it it stand as a boat it's not going to make any sense deal with it <laughs> yes that is the first episode in like any of the arcs that really just starts taking the reality distortion and cranking it right it's like mm-hmm. wait the bad guy's an orangutan that is the captain of the boat. Right. Like canonically. Wearing it's a little captain hat. Has, and, and like maybe a little pipe too, if I remember correctly. Yep. <laughs> I'm an But you never get any of his dialogue either. Either. Right. That's, that one's more of like a mystery rather than like an action sequence. Right. Yeah. That's like an Agatha Christie mm-hmm. sh- shout out. It's like, who could it possibly be? It was the <laughs> monkey. I know the orangutan <laughs> is not a monkey. That's your that's your little ten little Indians episode. I was gonna say something that becomes really important at the end of the show is the role of the narrator in delivering these little one off facts. So you get like Iggy being like, "How is that bird so fast?" And the narrator will take him aside, be like, "Did you know that the falcon is the fastest animal on Earth?" And in right. order to hunt at those high speeds, it needs to have pinpoint accuracy vision at up to like three miles away. And it's like, did you know that it has extra sacks of air in its lungs that will let it breathe at high altitude, which is also how it can hunt underwater, which becomes <laughs> super important. I, I appreciate like the role of of the the narrator bringing that weird groundedness into the story. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they use that to like positive ends. So like flashing back to the Bast fight really quickly. I knew I loved this show and felt better about the second season. When at the beginning of the Bast fight, the narrator goes, you might think that everyone in Cairo is Egyptian, but did you know that it's a very like multicultural city full of all sorts of different kinds of people? Here's a Bedouin mm. guy. And this is someone who's of Nubian descent. And it like being like, dear dumb reader, uh, Egypt is a melting pot. And mm-hmm. here are all the different cultures at play here. And not only is that like educational and wholesome, but it's a setup for like, and here's a Gazanga lady. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's pretty funny and and <laughs> and fun in in a way that I don't know that I can think of like another show that's done something like that. You know, for me. yeah, it, it's a really particular balance that it strikes right. uh, between breaking all the rules, establishing the rules, being educational, being worldly, being ridiculous and crass. Yeah, I think that, like, not to continue to to bring out my own stand, Love and Rockets, but uh, it does have just a tad of pinch on in it for that exact reason, you know? Sure, sure. You, you're going to make me read fucking Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> to, the longest part of the long game of this podcast. <laughs> is to get me to listen to, to read Gravity's Rainbow. I will probably have to listen to it as an audiobook because it's so long and so dense. But, okay. Okay, um, I'm into it. In terms of other, the one other stand that I feel like has to be mentioned that I really like is the uh, the first Darby, the card game. Like, 
talking about Yu-Gi-Oh, this is the like if if yeah, if Pet Shop is the best Digimon episode ever, then Daniel J. Darby is the best Yu-Gi-Oh episode ever. I guess I never really thought of that, but it literally is just like here's the core premise to Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah. In one episode. Card game, if you lose, you lose your, your soul. soul gets yeah. Right? And it's yeah, like literally it, Yu-Gi-Oh is just what if this episode for a whole show but they're playing Magic the Gathering? Right. And the rules don't apply and are different for every game and Right. Yeah. It's yeah, Magic the Gathering as Calvin Ball the anime. Correct. We need more ass pull cards. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas the uh, the Darby, you know, all of the bets that they they take on are like legitimate gambling you know right and the thing that makes it tricky of course is that he's a cheater um right which only makes it better that of course like old joe is also a cheater so it's the two of them out cheating each other and then i mean god like i don't want to like show jotaro compared to the ova jotaro is just like so much cooler and this episode is like the best example why has garbage hand plays it as ice cold as possible and wins just by having the best poker face. That's know? that New York boy thing. And I'm saying yeah. that to you and you're the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Give Joe Turo a Yankee hat. Right. <laughs> um, and this is all set up for like, I feel like that's the moment the, the, the Darby card game is really the thing that the reason that from that point on, I felt like I needed to watch all of it was like, that's when you start taking Jotaro seriously, not just as like a brawler, but also as like the guy that has like what it takes internally mm-hmm. to beat Dio. You know, that's where you see his like strength of character really come out. Mm-hmm. Nerves of nerves of steel. Yeah, exactly. Which is what makes him a compelling person, even though he doesn't really like things I like about this show. If we're zooming out a little bit, let's zoom out. Sure. A bit here, things that no ass pulls ever, which seems mm-hmm. like a silly critique. Like storytelling shouldn't be about like tropes, maybe, or like my relationship to storytelling shouldn't be about tropes. But at the same time, when like you've got something like this that's so invested in like tactics and strategy as narrative devices, yeah, I, 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 like I, I feel like that like adds a lot to it. And to our point previously, it, fe- it it's something that I think differentiates it from, like, lesser shonen shows, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Uh, I think the other thing I'd add to it is no shoehorned romance. Very true. I do think this, this shows... It, the way that it skirts that problem is just, like, women are barely present. Um, and I do think there is something kind of grody about like the way that it treats like Jotaro's mom and like there's a big part of the the plot arc is like how cool it is that Joseph is like not communicating with his wife you know right although I think that well okay so for it's worth here let me ask were you watching this subbed or dubbed uh subtitles okay I don't know if the subs are the same translation as the dubs but it has been pointed out to me by shout out to my bandmate professor benjamin burton a professor of japanese literature who has a jojo story that i'd like to tell at some point by the way mm-hmm. but he pointed out to me that the the translation of this arc sort of like ups the misogyny in a little bit 
of a way. Uh-huh. Interesting. In, that that he's like he's like in Japanese, like so for example, like in the first episode, at least in the dub, Jotaro says, Geez mom, stop being such a bitch, or like something like that. Is is that what the subtitle says? Basically, essentially. In, yeah. He said he, That's he, that's his inner white boy coming out, I guess. But Right. <laughs> ben pointed out that like in Japanese, the line of dialogue would more accurately translate into something like, Geez mom, you're so annoying. Yeah. Which seems kind of, I, I guess the idea more is more in character, yeah. more in character. But I think the idea of, of the translators like that seems kind of like featherweight for such like an abrasive guy. So it needs mm. to be more abrasive to like suit Americans in some way. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's bad logic. I think it's but bad. Yeah. He, he did point out that he's like the translation of this arc in particular is like a little more misogynist than than what he thinks an accurate translation ought to be. Mm-hmm. Well, the scene that I'm thinking of uh, along these lines is particularly the high priestess fight when they're in the submarine. Yeah. And like uh, Joseph is like lying to his wife. Right. And Jotaro covers for him mm-hmm. in a way that the show like really am amb- like unambiguously presents as like, this is Jotaro being a real man. And like, None of the none of the the men will ever tell any women that anything is wrong or anything's going poorly. Right. Uh, and so they're all like completely emotionally un- unavailable except to each other, which, again, it's like this sort of works with the weird homoerotic element of the show. Right. But at the consequence of them being like kind of grody dudes. To mm-hmm. You get the sense it, it, it's got in a weird way the same energy that maybe the Fight Club movie does. In that way, where it's like if there was like a woman character in this, it would maybe treat them in a weird way, the way that movie treats Marla. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's. So here's my take on that. Otherwise, that is like the the low point of I like the high priestess fight. I like the idea of like, oh, here's we're going to do the underwater episode. I also like I just think submarines are neat. (laughs) I'm in general pro pro submarine as set dressing. Mm -hmm. Give me more submarines. And Jotaro being like, I'm never going on a submarine ever again, and then ending up being a marine biologist. That's funny. It's, I like that. It is funny. I agree. I think a lot of that is sort of like a, a, the, the weird misogyny of that is maybe left over from season two because because mm-hmm. old Joe's wife is a character in season two, a bad character that is kind of like this like shrill harpy um, and it's like, ah, God, isn't she fucking irritating? Let's not go back there. But I, I agree with you. Like the the general, like all the other women are bad guys. Like and and yes, this or weird, are like maidens that need to be saved. Right. You know, in, like in the case of the set episode. Right. Yeah. Not into that. I think. I think JoJo's does. Eventually. Kind of pull out of that. A little bit, mm-hmm. but it takes like if there's a damning critique of like this this like series as a whole, I think that's it. Um, but I think it does kind of well for what it's worth, it's not quite as pervy as Ava is. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on on uh, the nature of your perversion, but Ava is definitely more mainstream pervy. You know? Yeah, there's no and is more leering in a, in a particular way. Yeah, y- yeah. There's JoJo's isn't super leery. I don't think of any like panty sniffing type sequences, mm-hmm. and it's worth it. it like in later arcs, this will change. You know, in Golden Wind, one of the Jobros is a woman, 
and in Stone Ocean, Jojo and all the Joe Bros are women. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so like I did it faster than Doctor Who did. Did I make that joke last time? Maybe I, don't I did. Think so I think okay. that's fresh. <laughs> okay, yeah. Suck on that, James Bond. Um <laughs> at least it does make an attempt to course correct sure. in some ways, I think. I'm excited for you to to get more into the the next arc, Diamond is Unbreakable, which I, I actually yeah. think is for my money, the high watermark of, of the mm-hmm. animations. And it doesn't do much better on, on the sexism front, but there is like a boss character. Who's like a weird woman that becomes a main character that I think is in some ways a little interesting. Like you mm-hmm. almost in that arc, see Iraqi go like, okay, maybe I gotta work this out. A maybe bit. I gotta yeah. work out some stuff with with this like Mm -hmm. so you know don't i guess if you're a listener and and like that's something that's turning you off maybe try and power through i'd say i don't know that you're gonna get like a full reversal but that's only because like stone ocean's only half out right so we don't even really even know necessarily how ultimately all of this is gonna yeah resolve itself yeah yeah i mean maybe we'll just cover that when we get to it sure right you know um i'd love for for you to do this again with me when you're done with diamond is unbreakable if only just to give me a reason to watch diamond is unbreakable (laughs) fair enough i'll have to come up with something else that i have to make you watch uh sure to balance it out sure 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 are there any other big zoomed out things that we want to talk about with uh with this show or do you want i know that you have some other things you maybe want to touch on before we sure close this first bonus episode off just because we're just because i'm making it my personal project to not ignore the creators Mm -hmm. i I just want to talk something a little bit about like the history of david productions that 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 makes this show david productions is a relatively new anime studio but this is also like our weird ava connection David Production started in 2007, I believe, and it was a spin-off of another studio called Gonzo. Gonzo mm-hmm. did some some cool stuff in the past few years. Gonzo did Helsing, the 2001 Helsing, Full Metal Panic, God Gravion. None of this is like the best, but some of it's pretty cool. Samurai 7 which slaps gang totsu the count of monte cristo which i've never seen but is supposed to be at least visually fucking beautiful they did maybe most famous in america they did the afro samurai anime oh okay yeah 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 so david production spun off from gonzo who were a big hitter for a long time but apparently were losing a lot of money <laughs> Uh, just goes to show you that, uh, uh, you know, uh, content creation is the same everywhere and in every genre. It's all just a shell game of debt at every scale. Oh, uh, Gonzo did Blue Submarine number six. If you were uh, an old school Toonami, like their first like, oh, let's do an OVA was Blue oh, okay. Submarine number okay. six. But uh, Gonzo was a split off from Gynax. No way. Okay. <laughs> so at the, at the topmost level, there is, there is like a connective tissue between Gynax and David productions. 
Um, it's worth noting that the guys at David who who do JoJo's Bizarre Adventure have basically done nothing else. So, like, I can't really talk too much uh, about them. Um, but the main director is a guy called Naokatsu Tsuda, who says Golden Wind is his favorite JoJo's arc. He he loves the the one set in Italy, which is one of not not one of uh, not one of my favorites. But um, I don't know. I thought that was I thought that was sort of interesting. It's I mean I think you can tell in the adaptation that they got people who loved the manga growing up, totally to run yeah. it. I think that's like to its credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it do- it doesn't feel like a like a cash grab kind of production. You know, no, like it it feels like. At least from what I can tell, it seems like it's done very much with love for the particular peculiarities of this production, you know? Sure. I I think like sometimes there can be. Not that I know myself. Too, too personally, but I think sometimes in entertainment in general, there can be like a mistrust of people who love source material. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess I'd hold the David Productions Jojo series up as an example of like. No, you can love the source material and adapt it well and have it be like its own thing that is good in and of itself. Right. I, I like when people challenge that, like mm-hmm. being a fan for something doesn't mean you're a simp for something. Yes, yes, exactly. That's the line that you have to walk. That is the human instrumentality podcast line exactly. that we try so, to walk. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes we stumble. Maybe I stumble more. But we, but we, but we, we do, we get up and we keep walking it. Mm-hmm. There we go. So I know that you also, you mentioned before we started recording that you've done sort of a little survey of modern shonen as well, just to kind of like complete the stuff that we were talking about in the, uh, the previous shonen episode, sure. which I think was maybe a bit, uh, millennially focused, one could say. Yes. I think that's, I think that's probably fair. I mean, so not long after we recorded that episode, io9, the website io9, uh, used to be part of the Gawker conglomerate, Mm -hmm. did this sort of like loving long read of Hunter Hunter's Chimera Ant arc. And I have like multiple times seen people, not people I know like super personally, but like speak highly of hunter hunter in general and the chimera antarch in specific mm-hmm. i think they published this article because the chimera antarch finally came on netflix i couldn't get through it i couldn't get more than a, than a couple episodes uh in i've also seen maybe a friend of mine sat me down and made me watch like the first four episodes or so of hunter hunter and uh it didn't didn't click with me i, I didn't really get it um nope but i'm yeah, I'm curious here, like, why, what, what made it not work for you? It felt like watching the specific era of Saturday morning on Nickelodeon anime block. Mm. Like, it, it, mm-hmm. it gave me specifically the, like, we hoovered up the IP right after Pokemon feel. Right, the Monster Rancher kind of energy. Yes, it. I got the Monster Rancher hit off of it, and I am not into that. I'll, I'll, yeah, like it. Yeah. It did not do the thing that Digimon did, where it's like weirdly there's like something subversive and good 
underneath like the pandering. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I did not get that from it and maybe it gets there, but it's just, God, the climb to get to Chimera Agnes is like the arc is half the rank length of the series. Yeah. Half of it is the yeah. last arc. You, you drop in with like no fucking idea. What's like of the worldview. It's a slow burn. I don't know. I couldn't do it. But what it did convince me to do, weirdly enough, was go back and revisit Yu Yu Hakusho. Mm-hmm. Were you mm-hmm. a Yu Yu Hakusho guy? No, I, I never watched it. It's like something that I knew was around, but I think I just never knew when it was on. I never knew where to see it. And like, I didn't have cable growing up, so I wasn't on the whole like tsunami right. thing really sure but i've heard it's really good and i know uh, you know former guest on the uh, of the pod eric Thurm, like tweets about it somewhat constantly yeah so like i i feel like i need to check it out now uh but i don't know what do you what did you think of your rewatch i mean look it's long i didn't get to the second half i got to the end mm-hmm. of like the first th- there is like there is a long tournament arc although wonderful to its yeah. To its credit, it does not do the Dragon Ball Z thing where, like, every fight lasts 20 episodes. Um, <laughs> right. The longest fight is three, and that's the final boss. So that's Perfect. G- good. And it has, like, a very JoJo-y set up. It, like, in a weird way, it's it's a lot. It is a lot like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure in some ways. Particularly Stardust Crusaders, right? Yes. Particularly, mm-hmm. like, the juvenile delinquent thrust into like a world of magic has to become a tough guy and it's sort of like if you walk away from stardust crusaders and your your takeaway is i wish there was like more emotion and sentimentality mm. particularly mm. to jotaro that's yu yu Hakusho. gotcha cool it, like it really is more like emotionally invested in its main character the the premise is that he dies prematurely and that he was going to go to hell, but because he like accidentally dies, saving this kid from being hit by a car, like mm. the spirits of the afterlife kind of be like, we're going to give you a second chance at life because mm-hmm. we did not anticipate you being like a decent human being, but like <laughs> the, but like the cost of bringing you back to life is going to be, you need to kill demons for us. That have escaped the netherworld and are like haunting the real world. So that's that's the the premise. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty good, I'd say. I like the B cast. If you're into the pretty boy thing, that's not necessarily my thing. But it it does lean into like, here's your slash fic pretty boys. (laughs) Uh, At the end. They're here. We got them for you. We're going to give them slashy bad guys, too. One of them looks uh, alarmingly like uh, NBA star, a former star, no, now role player, Blake Griffin. Um, I, I, I don't know up. which one it is, but <laughs> every time I see him, it's like, why is Blake Griffin wearing a Japanese schoolboy uniform? Oh, he's Kuwabara. Okay. Like <laughs> Kuwabara is the best character on the show. Okay, cool. He's, he's the, he's the, what if you gave the dumb jock an even dumber jockier rival? <laughs> cool and, yeah, yeah. And, but he's a cat dad 
And now that I'm a cat dad, I weirdly have this like affection for Kuabar. I'm like, <laughs> yes, kittens are a source of pure joy. How could you not like give your all to defend them? So there you there you go. Um, it, it took a lot of time. I don't know if I'm gonna go back and and get, catch the second half. It like it gets to like a good emotional resolve after that mm. tournament arc. But yeah, I cautiously positive about Yu Hakusho. That's because the guy who wrote Yu Hakusho, let me just fact check myself while I'm seeing this. He later did Yoshihiro Tagashi is the guy. Yes, he does Hunter Hunter after Yu Hakusho. I see. So you were kind of like that's going back to that's where I got the idea liked because he didn't like the new one. Uh, your yeah. old band. It's mm-hmm. uh, I don't like Stephen Wilson's solo career, but I stand Porcupine Tree. Totally. Yes, there we yes, go. Yes. Um, it turns out, by the way, that uh, Tagashi's wife is Nako Takuchi, the author of Sailor Moon. That is a power couple. Jesus. It is a it is a power couple. And you hack a show definitely has like Sailor Moon, but their boys energy mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we're going to. We're going to go fight evil as teenagers at night and be our true flashy selves. I'm into it. I'm gosh, yeah. into that. Okay. So there you go. Um, Chimera Antark didn't, didn't land with me, but um, did give me a greater appreciation for you. Yu Yuhaka show. And the other recommendation I'm going to give for you, Ian is demon slayer. Mm-hmm. Be- believe the hype. I okay. was skeptical. I'm curious to, because I, for me, my skepticism was entirely like anything this popular must be at least sort of not good, you know, which is like a stupid Gen X opinion to have, but it's one that I can't quite disentangle from my How taste. How do you have that opinion when you're younger than me? I was on the same internet that you were on. That's so. true. <laughs> no, that's fair. And we're still on it together somehow. Yeah. Okay. So how's this? Here's my pitch of you for Demon Hunter. Does it, do, does it have drawbacks? Yes. Are they kind of glaring? Yes. And I can get into them. But if, if you, so one of the little side memes that's come up. In so our you just, you had a metalhead slip there. It's demon slayer, demon slayer, not demon, demon hunter. Oh, who I th- you've also pitched me on before for what it's worth <laughs> for a Christian metalcore band. They got a couple bangers, demon yeah. slayer. Yes. We also just did Hunter Hunter, right? Right. You don't pronounce yeah, the X, by the way, for some reason. I don't know why. Hunter times Hunter. Hunter times Hunter. Hunter. Squared. Backtracking really quickly. It's worth noting that the translation for Yu Yu Hakusho is Poltergeist Report. And that would have been perfectly fine translated. Like, huh. why not just call it Poltergeist? I don't Poltergeist know. Anyway. Report. It kind of rolls off fun. the tongue in a nice way. Yeah. yeah. I, it's weird that that's the one you don't. Tra- anyway. Demon Slayer. Does it have its drawbacks? Yes. But one of the like recurring things that's come up in our show together is your unabashedly negative and my weird ambivalent feelings on Attack on Titan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you want to boil my thing with Attack on Titan down to one thing, it's what a great what a what an interesting premise and what flashy visuals and what a great little action show and why in its heart of hearts does it just love racism <laughs> like it's just a, it's just my problem with it is i'm like man yeah. it's like and, and why do you do such a for a while they do a good job of juggling like maybe it's actually about why racism is bad and they just snatch that away from you at the very end mm-hmm. um which makes it sting even more right demon slayer is what if you had a contemporary stylish well-paced action series 
aimed at kids, but there's some slightly more adult content too. Not as scary as Attack on Titan. But like, what if mm. you did that and it just had this incredibly empathetic Studio Ghibli heart to it? Mm-hmm. Like it's got this weirdly charismatic or not charismatic, weirdly compassionate attitude towards its villains. It's super not leery. Like mm-hmm. the main character is this wholesome person who does not really love violence, but is sort of like thrust into the role of be is a like a reluctant hero that critically is never too reluctant. Yeah, is just that's cu- a tough balance because you don't want to make it feel like the main character also doesn't want to be watching the show that you're watching. Exactly. You know what I mean? It, yeah. They do a perfect job with this kid of it being like, I don't like killing things, but gosh darn it, I guess I'm going to have to decapitate some demons. Mm-hmm. And this hurts me as much as it hurts you. And like, weirdly, that's a great little tone to 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 hit. It's like Bleach, but if it wasn't just trying to be stylish, if it was like, no, we watched a lot of Spirited Away and we're yeah. trying to like bring that into this idiom. Yeah, I mean, I will say that like what the first crack in my shell of uh, knee jerk haterdom was hearing the uh, sound only podcast talk about the movie. Right. Um, that, you know, obviously did huge numbers both in Japan and in America and hearing them describe it. I was like, Oh, this, this does sound sick. This sounds like not just like a fun action movie, but it does sound like it actually has some serious heart to it, which is, uh, it does. Awesome. Cool. The cool thing is now it's now it is, they did split it up into episodes. So you don't need to rent the movie. You can, they like Mm. added a little, they like added some stuff in so they could get a seven episode arc out of it so like sure. now that is on hulu so that's what i was waiting for that's a really good that's a really good description of it it does it does have some of like your shonen drawbacks unlike jojo's bizarre adventure the b cast is pretty cloying and annoying okay the yeah. main woman character spends the entire series literally gagged which is kind <sighs> of weird that's that's strange yeah well she's a demon so she doesn't bite people I know. Sure, but again, I know. like I've I, I've read I know Kojima's re- reasoning for why in Metal Gear Solid Five the woman needs to be wearing a bikini the whole time. Like I know covering your ass when I see it. You know, this at least seems like not something they thought of after they made the decision. <laughs> you, you know, so at least right. at least there's that. It looks good. I'm not going to, this isn't, we're not here to talk about Demon Slayer, but I just wanted to throw that out there that if what you want is something in this vein that will make you like feel good, Demon Slayer is really good at that. As long as the one lightning kid isn't fucking yelling. Because <laughs> he just goes, bah, 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 the whole fucking time. And I'm like, every time he's fighting a boss, I'm like, God damn it. Get me to the end of this. Get me back to the nice main character with the water sword. Well, I guess along the lines of recommendations, uh, we're still figuring out a lot of the the content that we want to do. And like, God, content. I just said it without any hint of irony. Just just murder. Take me behind the shack and shoot me now. Do you regret before, your words and deeds? <laughs> I do regret my words and deeds. Uh, if you do, if if our listeners have any recommendations for stuff that they want to hear us cover 
for these bonus episodes. We are open to recommendations. We will not be binded by the recommendations in case any of you decide to troll us with your hard-earned cash, which, look, you're listening to an anime podcast. I, I'm not going to assume how freaky you are if you're trying to, like, get us onto some weirdo shit that is not not our vibe like we will veto it but if you send said, me an email that recommends bible black unironically i will dox you <laughs> point being i'm really excited to keep experimenting with this and to keep covering stuff that doesn't quite warrant a full season but is worth talking about for god an hour and a half straight well you will you say that but let me pitch you okay on next month we do still have a particular thing of cones that we need to wrap up that didn't oh, make it into the season. You're right. You're right. Now I regret my words and deeds. We should <laughs> do that probably. No promises. Maybe we'll do that next. But at some point in time, I need to show you the meaning of regret with you shit talking the Gamera trilogy. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, fair is fair. That is true. It's good. <laughs> it's actually it's actually really good. I'm, I I will not I will cease my uh my making fun of your your beloved turtle uh until I actually see the movies and can speak with more authority on the matter. So, yes, let's Let's table that. Let's have that as a possibility. There's more cone to talk about and perhaps more Jojo's as well. So there's, there's options. There's ways to go here. All I'm trying to say is doors open. If you want to send us an email with some recommendations, uh, I know that there's also, we get questions about like stuff that we, you know, didn't bring up during the first season that may be relevant. So there, there might still be things for us to talk about for a while now, but ultimately thank you so much for listening to this and for, backing us on patreon it really does mean a lot uh it's weird because we're doing this before we've actually launched it so i have no many idea uh, no idea of how many of you there are but even if it's a small handful huge haul full however many thank you so much it It, really really, in advance it means the world to us and uh so with that i guess we'll close up this first bonus episode uh i have no sexy sign off quite yet but maybe i'll work on one And uh, we'll talk to you next month. I'm so excited. See ya.